If you'd have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 9. I wonder if you can think of the particular phrase or expression your parents used when they were frustrated with you. Did they have an expression that you just knew when you saw that or you heard that it was time for trouble? Now, my mother at 5'1", 105 pounds, was not particularly an intimidating figure. But when she said the word, well, the words, hell's bells, she wasn't thinking of the popular ACDC song. She was thinking of something else, and it was something I didn't want to be thinking of, I'm sure. And what you knew is that when hell's bells came out and you were somewhere in the house, it was time to either do what you've been repeatedly asked to do or to just simply get out of the way because you didn't want to experience whatever hell's bells were. I never quite figured that out. It did serve as a good motivational device for my three older sisters and myself, that when hell's bells came out, you began to move in some direction. You didn't stay where you were. Well, we're continuing in our series on discipleship in Mark chapter 9 and 10. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus has turned a corner. He's been talking about his identity in the first few chapters, and here he's primarily giving instructions to his disciples to say, once you've recognized me, once you've gotten the right words down, once you recognize that I am the Christ, then how is it you follow after that phrase? It's not just getting the right words down. We want to As Paul says in Ephesians 4, we want to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The first three chapters, you remember if you were here when we studied through Ephesians, the first three chapters were about doctrine. We've got to get the doctrine down right. We have to understand what it is that we believe. But once you get that down, then Paul immediately turns a corner for the second half of the book to say, now this is what it means to walk or to look like a Christian out in the world. It's not enough just to have the right doctrine down. You have to have the right duty. It's not enough just to have the right words. You also have to be walking in the right way. And so Christ is helping his disciples understand what it means to walk in the right way. Here, in this passage, which we talked about last week, Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples of how to sever themselves from sin pretty strongly. If your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, you should just cut it off. And we talked about that last week. But what I want to focus our time in on today is what may seem like an unusual motivational tactic. Jesus is obviously trying to initiate some movement in his disciples. And he says this three times. He uses this phrase, verse 43, verse 45, and again in verse 47. It's better for you. So apparently Jesus is saying saying this, I know something you don't know. And what I want to tell you is it's better for you to do what I'm telling you than to not do what I'm telling you. And then this is what he says. It's better for you to cut off or tear out or sever the sin in your lives 
than, and then he mentions this three times. So when you see something in the Bible twice, it's there for emphasis. If it's repeated three times in a, in a small text, then it's really emphasizing it. So he's saying, it's better for you. It's better for you. It's better for you. He's trying to drill this into the disciples. And then he says almost the same thing. If you're not willing to sever yourselves from sin, then the consequences, again, in verse 43, 45, and 47, 43 says, go to hell. 45 and 47 says, be thrown into hell. And then sort of as a description in verse 47, Jesus pulls out a passage from Isaiah 66 and he gives a description of what hell is like where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So what we're talking about today is this concept of hell. And we want to recognize just a few things before we get started. First, let's be honest to say this is a difficult subject to talk about. You may be here for the first time. You may have invited your neighbor and said, boy, you're going to like our pastor. (laughs) Maybe you're a visitor just trying to seek some answers. In any case, you may be saying to yourself right now, oh, great, I picked Hell Week to come to church. Boy, that's exciting. What kind of luck can I have? It's like that's right next to the, the, the sermon on stewardship and what you should do with your money. Those are in the top two. So let's just admit from the beginning, it's not an easy place to stand here this morning. I don't think it's any easier to be sitting in your place. We would, number two, rather dismiss it altogether. Kind of thinking that hell is some sort of medieval concept coming from Dante's Divine Comedy. And it's not really realistic. Why would we want to talk about that? And the reason we can't dismiss it altogether is because Jesus is saying it. We're not talking about a concept. We're not just talking about what Dante may have thought of that concept. We're trying to bore into Mark chapter 9. And Jesus is the one who's talking about hell. So we can't just skip over it. The third thing that's important before we begin is to think Or be reminded of God's heart towards his enemies. When you're thinking about hell, you need to understand or or really clue in to God's heart. Ezekiel 33. The Lord says this, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live, turn Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? Jonah, the prophet, as you know, was more concerned about his own comfort than the comfort of the people who are lost. And God says in the last statement, this is the statement that closes the book of Jonah. Remember, Jonah had been complaining because this vine had grown up and had given him shade. And that's all he was concerned about. He wasn't concerned about the people who were repenting. He was concerned about this vine that had given him shade and the Lord sent a worm to eat up the vine. And this closes the book. You've been more concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh, you're sitting here looking at a vine and Christ is or God is saying, I'm looking at Nineveh. 
And Nineveh has 120,000 people. And this is how I describe them. They cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. Should I not have compassion on that great city? It's so sad that so many Christians are more worried about their own comfort than the discomfort that's facing people who don't know the Lord. And that's exactly what he's telling Jonah. Jesus in Matthew 23, he comes into Jerusalem, the city that's supposed to represent him, where where God came down in his glory in the Old Testament. This is the seat that you could interface with God on. And he sent his prophets to Jerusalem and the people killed them. And Christ enters that city and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who I sent to you. And then listen to his heart. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Paul says this about his own people in Romans 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself, listen to this, he's looking at people who don't know Christ. Imagine yourself saying this. I wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. So so when we enter into this discussion of hell, it's not a discussion without compassion. It's not just a, a discussion of condemnation. We're understanding the heartbeat of God here. C.S. Lewis in his great way offers, a, I think, a helpful reminder In all discussions of hell, we should keep steadily before our eyes the possible damnation, not of our enemies, nor of our friends, but of ourselves. And so when we're discussing this, who is Jesus discussing this concept with in Mark chapter 9? He's not discussing it with the 5,000. He's not discussing it with the Pharisees. He's discussing it with the disciples, saying, if you disciples don't sever yourselves from sin, then this is your danger. And so we need to take heart of the message ourselves. Finally, I think it's important to recognize if we avoid these kinds of difficult doctrines, it eventually brings about unintended consequences. You might think of it as a, um, an ecological balance. You, you would know from studying in high school biology that if you enter into a certain environment or a certain area and you say, well, let's take out all the undesirable animals or let's take out all the predators, what eventually happens to that area? It gets overpopulated with the things that you like. There's a limited food supply. There are no predators. There's no undesirable animals. And the very things that you wanted more of and you wanted to see more of actually begin to die off and strip away. And the exact same thing happens in Christianity and is happening rampantly through our churches. Churches are looking at this concept of hell and trying to just ignore it or push it away. They're trying to say, well, that's not desirable. You're not going to get a lot of people through the door, Paul, if you keep talking about hell. That's not real seeker sensitive. That's not real seeker friendly. But what happens is if we push these doctrines out the door, then the things that we take incredible comfort in begin to get stripped away. 
You see, if you don't have this doctrine of hell and God's right judgment, then what begins to get stripped away slowly but surely is God's grace and God's mercy. That's that's an inevitable concept. And so you begin to look at the cross now in a different way. Because you've ignored these important, although difficult, doctrinal pieces. So we don't want to ignore those here. The benefit of reading through the Gospels is that the writers won't allow us to just create a designer Jesus. Because you have to read all these words. You can't just skip over. And see, that's what I'm afraid sometimes maybe even some of us have done. We've just skipped over the hard parts. And what we've done is we've taken this piece. And oh, we like that piece. And we put this piece together. And really the Jesus we deserve is the designer Jesus. He's designed in the way that I like. And all the things that I don't really like that He says, or maybe I don't understand, I just kind of carve those off. And you know what that image is? It's not Jesus. You know what that image is? It's you. You've just fashioned a God in your own image. And so by reading, preaching through the Bible, we're going to come across these hard doctrines and what's going to be carved off is you, not Christ. If we're going to read Mark chapter 2, and we're going to remember this great story. Remember when the paralytic is brought down in front of Jesus? And what is Jesus? He looks at the paralytic. He looks at these men. And He looks at the paralytic again and says, your sins are forgiven. And we make an incredible application to ourselves. We're crippled. We can't get to Christ on our own. Something or someone has to bring us to Christ. And we can't cleanse ourselves. We need Christ to look at us and say, you're forgiven. That's it. I've just said it. No work. Nothing you have to do. If you want to embrace that great doctrine, then you're going to have to look at Mark chapter 9. You can't just skip over Mark chapter 9. When Jesus is looking at His disciples and saying, guys, you, you might be in danger, real danger here, and I want to repeat it over and over and over again so you don't miss it. So let's look at the topic in these three ways. First, let's look at the picture that Jesus actually provided for His disciples. I mean, when the disciples were hearing Jesus saying this, what kind of picture were they having in their mind? What were they thinking when Jesus used the word hell? Secondly, let's talk briefly just about Jesus' use of it as a motivational tool. And third, I want to look at a common objection to hell. First, the picture. The word that Jesus uses here for hell is actually spelled Gehenna. G-E-H-E-N-N-A. And it's mentioned in the New Testament 12 times, 11 times. Jesus is the one who uses it. And it's really um, a picture from an Old Testament time. You, you know that if you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up to Jerusalem. So you're moving up because Jerusalem is built on a, on a hill or built on a mountaintop. At the very top of the mountain is the mount that the temple is built on. So everybody's moving up and all around Jerusalem are valleys. And on the southwest side of the valley is a place where 
that Jesus is talking about here in this particular passage, a particular geographical location. When Moses led the Jewish people into the land of Canaan, I'm sorry, after Moses' death, most of you are going, I didn't realize Moses did that. When Joshua led the people into Canaan, sorry, some of you are going, wow, check out this church. Um, <laughs> when Joshua led the people into Canaan, there, was these, there, there were these explicit instructions And that was, do not follow the idols of this land. It was repeated over and over again. Please, you know the real God. You know Yahweh. You know His name. When you get into this culture, don't begin to absorb this culture and begin to follow after this culture. Please don't worship the idols in this culture. And there were lots of them. But the one that was most repulsive was the worship of Molech, which we mentioned here in 2 Kings. Josiah, back in 2 Kings 23, had come in and he's reforming the um, country of Israel and he's destroying idols and he's destroying Molech, which is in this valley that lays just outside of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnon, which is where we get the word hell. In this valley, the worship of Molech consisted of this. Molech had a head of a bull and the body of a human or a body of a man. And they would set up this iron sort of pillar that looked like the body of a man and the head of a bull. And then the, the man would have arms outstretched and at a bit of an angle. And in the internal working of this body was this roaring fire. And what was so repulsive about the worship of Molech is it required the sacrifices of infants. And, And without trying to be too descriptive on what it was like, let's just say it was so terrible that all the time the priests of Molech would beat these great drums. Boom! And they would just get louder and louder. And the reason they beat these great drums is so that you would drown out the sounds of the worship of Molech. That's the picture Jesus is trying to give here. By the time we get to Jesus' day, that valley has basically become a garbage dump. The worship of Molech is not there any longer, but what they do is they drag criminals or bodies of dead animals or all the dump stuff that would come out of a city like Jerusalem, and they would just burn it constantly. And because there were dead bodies there, you would have wolves or wild dogs come and that you would hear them gnash their teeth because they'd be fighting over the, the rotting flesh that was there. And just like any garbage dump, there were maggots and worms that just sort of worked through the filth. Are you getting a picture here? Hell isn't just where all my friends are, which you'll hear today. Jesus is stretching the disciples' imagination. He's, he's stretching the language if you're a parent here, you're, you're trying to not have your kid hear too much because it's, it's so horrible. It's so, just so terrible 
And Jesus is using every sense. His, your smell. You, you can hear the drums. If you lived in Jerusalem at that time, if, if Peter had gone or any of the disciples had gone to Jerusalem and there was a, a southeast or northeast wind, you would smell this smell over the city of Jerusalem. And you would be reminded of the death and decay. And so when Jesus is using this word hell, that's the picture that comes to mind for the disciples. It's not accidental language. He's trying to capture the disciples' attention. He's trying to motivate them in a different direction. What I wanted to think about this week was just this idea of the motivation of that. And as I thought about that, I remembered this. When I was a child, probably through the seventh grade, I lived in five different cities from being probably five years old to how old are you in the seventh grade? Thirteen. So from five to thirteen, I lived in five different cities. And each of these five cities were all very small cities, very small towns. And my mother grew up Baptist, so we went to small Baptist churches in small, mostly southern towns. And I don't have a whole lot of real strong memories. Most of them, I'm fairly fond of those memories. This is, this is a memory that is not vague at all. Uh, my Baptist preacher in any one of these small towns, standing sort of like this, usually bent down a little bit, real worked up. And I'm sitting in a red velvet pew, and he's got his finger moving like this, and all I hear is, you're going to hell. And I just shook in my pew like, oh my gosh, I want to do whatever I can to avoid that. And so as a seven-year-old, I just waddled on down to the front one day. Because whatever he was talking about, it seemed like if you came down front, you could avoid all that. And so there I found myself. And that was the picture. Well, then when I got into high school, I sort of walked away from the church. And I really wasn't involved in the church. But whenever I heard the word hell, which I actually did frequently in my high school, hear that word, I just kept thinking... That's that kind of like that manipulative kind of motivational tool that that red-faced pastor used to get me to waddle down that aisle a few years back. That was sort of the picture I had. And if I ever started thinking about Jesus, what I started thinking about are verses like this. John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I love that picture. I want to embrace that picture All day long. I just didn't realize that before Jesus says that, He says the thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. Well, you know, I could have just avoided that. I just didn't like that sound. And so I I found myself thinking about how it seemed manipulative. And then I'm reading this passage. And I'm reading this description of hell. And I'm reading Jesus repeatedly saying, it's better for you guys than to be over here. It's better for you than to be thrown into. It's better than, than being, than going to. 
And I begin to hear this language, this, this sort of alarming language to say, wake up. Jesus is saying, you may be in a spiritual slumber and the spiritual slumber may cost you your eternal life in a place you'd never want to visit. No place you'd ever joke about. And sometimes very difficult truths are needed to wake people up out of a slumber. And so I didn't see it as manipulative anymore, any more than I did my mother's use of the word hell's bells. It was just simply a warning to say something is about ready to happen and you need to move in a different direction. And if that's helping you today, and if all you can remember is me bending down, and if it motivates you to just to simply wake up from a spiritual slumber and say, I better start considering what Jesus said, not what I'm saying, but what Jesus is saying then I'm going to be okay with that. It's like Jesus is using these smelling salts that you see that they use in athletics. See somebody on the football field, they get knocked out, they're kind of drowsy, they bring them over to the side, and what do they do? They break open these little smelling salts and they... Whiff it underneath their nose, and this ammonia is so strong, you all always hear these people waking up. And Jesus is taking the smell of death, he's putting it underneath the nose again, not of the 5,000, not of the Pharisees, he's putting it underneath the nose of the disciples, and he's saying, guys, this is coming your way. If you don't let go, if you don't sever yourself from sin, So my question to you is, Jesus talks more about hell than anyone else. What do you think of hell? In studying, I found there's all kinds of different positions on it. I'm trying to represent Jesus' position here. It's worth taking a few moments and reflecting today on what it is that Jesus is trying to communicate both to his disciples and to you. One common objection to hell, there are lots, but hell seems to make Christianity so exclusive, sort of so definite. I mean, you're kind of in or you're out, and... In our culture, that's not very inclusive language. And we're in a culture that you have to include as large a group as you can. And so when we think about hell, it just seems so final and so so exclusive of some number of people that you'll hear this statement. They have said this statement. I think Christ is fine. But, you know, I, I don't think God would send a person who lives a good life to hell. I mean, even if they have a wrong set of beliefs. And really what I just want to point out kindly is, although this thinking is not Christian, Orthodox Christian thinking, it is a religious belief. It is a sort of religion. And that religion, the the foundation of that religion is this. 
We develop a good record. We give it to God and he owes us. And because that always leaves us in control, we're always going to have this religion around because it's really popular. I'm developing some kind of record. It's pretty decent. I'm giving it to God, whatever I may think of God. And then he's got to owe me. He owes me at the end. And what I really want to note here is that that's exclusive. It's exclusive because good people get in and bad people are excluded. It's just that you get to determine who's good and bad. And here's no surprise. When you get to determine who's good and bad, who always somehow manages to make it into heaven. You do. Even if you sneak in by your own standard. You never write the rules and say, I just can't live up to that. You just rewrite them and say, well, I'm not so bad. Do you see what happens? Somebody in your religion is bad enough to actually go to hell. And you've just determined what it is. So it is exclusive. Bad people are out and good people are in. That's not the gospel. And I hope you're not confused on that. The gospel is this. God develops a good record. He freely and lovingly gives you His record. It's unbelievable. And once you recognize that, you owe Him your life. And once you recognize that, you wouldn't want anything else. And I want you to hear me say, I think that's exclusive. But here's how it's exclusive. The people who know that they're bad, they have a chance to find God. The people who think that they're good, they don't find God. Do you see how completely opposite it is than regular religious thinking? If you're sitting here saying, I just know I couldn't be good enough. Praise the Lord! You have a chance to find God. But if you're sitting there thinking, I'm not so bad then the first thing you're going to need to repent of is your own righteousness. Because you and I don't get in on our own righteousness. We get in by the righteousness of God. He's developed a good record. He is giving it to you. And no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, He joyfully gives over His record to you. That's the Gospel. And so we're left with either trusting in our own record or trusting in the record of Jesus Christ. Now, I get this question sometimes, and I mostly get it from my Baptist friends, and I can say that because I grew up Baptist. They'll say something like this. Paul, I like coming to your church, but if you're at Christ Community Church, how do you respond to the Gospel? Because I'm used to, basically just as I am playing a few times, and the pastor's standing up here, and he gives you a pretty good long time, maybe at least a little too long, to come forward. But how would you, how would you respond if, you, if you're hearing about Christ here, if you're seeing that He is the One, and if you're wanting to walk forward in a life with Him, how is it you would respond here? And I don't want to say it's not good to ask people to come forward. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that what happens a lot of times in a sermon like this, people do sort of arouse from a spiritual slumber. 
They might have done it at some kind of crusade or some kind of meeting. And they sort of aroused just enough to say, (laughs) I don't want whatever he was talking about. Apparently you can come forward and get rid of that. And they come forward, they pray the right words. They walk back, and just before they go back into their spiritual sleep, they think this, I got my fire insurance today. That's not being a Christian. Just saying the right words. Just remembering a time way back when when you did one thing and then you've been asleep since. That's not following Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Guys, you've said the right thing, but you've still got some severing to do. And so it's not as if we're trying to make it difficult. What we're trying to do is say, if the Holy Spirit has grabbed a hold of your heart and is beginning to wake you up to actually give you life, then nothing's going to prevent you from following up in that conversation with somebody about that. You could call me, which many people do, or email me. You could call or email an elder. You could find me after the service. You could go immediately and pray with an elder in a room. You could find one of your Christian friends and say, I need someone to talk to. But we want that fire, no pun intended, To burn inside of you enough to get you to move in a different direction. At Christ Community Church, we have no interest in people just saying the right words. We want them to walk in the right way as well. Let's pray together. Lord, I wouldn't choose to preach this message But I don't get to choose. And I don't want to just skip over hard things and embrace the great things because the great things aren't so great any longer. We just have such a tendency to elevate ourselves. We need your help. We need the kind of help that only you can provide. Some of us need to wake up from a spiritual slumber. We are in real danger. Holy Spirit, I just ask for you to do the work that only you can do. Lord, You have, in your common grace, given us more than we could use. Home, food, clothes, friends. And in an act of worship, we just put something in a wicker basket to say, we just know this is everything's from you. You own it all. I pray no one would put something in thinking they've earned something from you. We gratefully, we cheerfully give it back because you have given us your good record. In Jesus' name, amen.